Thanks for listening to the Red Haven Advisors podcast. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment advice. None of the information contained in this podcast or in our material shall constitute an offer to sell or solicit any offer to buy a security. The information and opinions contained in any of our materials are believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Please consult with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Today is September 18th, 2020, and you are listening to episode two of the Red Haven Advisors podcast. My name is Seamus McCarthy, and I am the founder and portfolio manager here at Red Haven Advisors. Today, Heidi and I will be discussing how correlation between your human capital and your financial capital can create portfolio risk. So question for our listeners, does a significant portion of your net worth include financial assets tied to the same company or industry where you or your spouse work? In this episode of the Red Haven Advisors podcast, we discuss how diversifying your financial capital and your human capital could strengthen your portfolio. As you know, Red Haven Advisors is based in Seattle, and the local economy here, it's booming. The area has been blessed with not just strong job growth, but strong job growth for good jobs. Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks, T-Mobile, Costco, and many other employers have been adding headcount in recent years to support their growing businesses. The top 20 publicly traded Washington-based businesses have paid more than $16.2 billion in stock-based compensation in the past 12 months alone. Further, they've paid $70 billion in stock-based compensation over the past decade. Now, that's a lot of big numbers, but to understand just how big of numbers those really are, let's not imagine just the employees of those companies. Let's think about Washington as a whole. 7.3 7.3 million people live in, in, live in Washington. So if these companies were to send that money to everyone in the state, they could send everybody in the state a check for $2,200. So these companies have been paying a lot of stock-based compensation. So even if these employees received only a portion of that $70 billion, say a lot of that went to the top rather than being spread to the employees, there's still a lot of stock-based compensation that was out there. And a lot of those employees live here, and a lot of those employees are probably wondering, is now the time to start diversifying some of those funds? For more specifics on those numbers, we've made some really nice charts, and we've put them on our website. You can find those if you go to our homepage at redhavenadvisors.com front slash media. Amazon, in the past 12 months alone, paid out $8 billion in stock-based compensation. Microsoft has paid $5.3 billion in stock-based compensation in the last 12 months. This area has been really, really blessed. T-Mobile paid $650 million in stock-based compensation. Costco, $600 million in, in the past 12 months. Every company that you could probably think of that's publicly traded in this area is on this list. That's great. Thanks for the great intro. I guess that kind of makes me wonder, you know, we've heard recently about how the Seattle area home prices are hitting all-time highs, even despite COVID being a hardship for many Americans. Uh, But it seems to not have hit these tech industries. And with a lot of these people receiving more and more stock compensation or, you know, an equal amount each year, but it goes up all the time, the stock market's at all-time highs. You have to wonder if that's contributing to the high bidding for these home prices in this area. But I know you're planning to kind of talk about real estate a little bit more later on in the podcast, so we can touch on that later. So the first things first, 
One thing that I think would be good to explain is that when you talk about human capital versus financial capital, what exactly um, are you talking about? What's the difference between the two? It's a good question. So the, the, way, the way really to think about this is when we start our careers, we basically have 100% human capital and 0% financial capital. I mean, think back to when you started your first job. You know, you were probably, you know, in your mid-20s, give or take, and you probably didn't have a lot of money. But inside of you, there was an enormous amount of potential. So what you had there was a lot of human capital and not really a lot of financial capital. And now think about it as your career moves forward. As time goes on, you'll eventually be 65 and you'll be thinking about retiring. And at that point, when you retire, you won't have any more human capital really to deploy in terms of trading time for money, but rather you will have traded all of that, those working years for money. So you'll have, in this case, 100% financial capital. But along that curve, there's a mix between human capital and financial capital. And really trying to get that balance and trying to figure out the, the best way to efficiently allocate your human capital and your financial capital and manage it so that there's not too much risk between the two. That's really what this show is about today. That's a good summary. It's kind of funny. I saw a Warren Buffett interview relatively recently, probably when he was in his 80s. And he said that if there's one thing that he could buy right now, it would be time. So that's definitely a good lesson. The human capital is something we all wish we could keep forever. Um, But knowing that we can't, this is episode two of the podcast, and we could be discussing any number of important topics this week, but we're talking about human and financial capital. So what makes this topic so important to cover now? That's a funny point about Warren. For uh, for folks listening to this that follow Warren, they will know that Warren turned 90 last month, and uh, he's still got a lot of human capital left because he's still, he's still in the office every day. He's still in there working probably still enjoys the job a lot. So he's, uh, he's still at it. But I think right now for what makes this really so timely, um, this really applies to the people here in, in Seattle, you know, a lot, but not, not just Seattle. I mean, anywhere is, is relevant, but in Seattle, there's, there's a few things going on that make it super timely. So here in Seattle, there is basically, we've got a mini a mini boom or maybe a a big boom, a big tech boom. Basically it's this place right now. It's a mini gold rush. It's there is money flowing. Uh, people are doing really well. All of the companies that are here or not all, but many, many of the companies that are here, their stock prices are, are, are going bananas. There is, there is just a lot of reason right now why people that are looking at their portfolios, looking at their overall financial picture, should consider what it means to have a diversified portfolio. Diversified meaning your financial capital and your human capital aren't correlated. So for example, let's just say that you worked at a tech company and now because of how well that tech company has done, you know, how well its stock has done, how well the business has done um, since you started there. And now basically half of your net worth, I'm just making numbers up here, but half of your net worth is in uh, your company stock and your income comes from that same company. You have a very high correlation between where your income is coming from and where your your financial capital has been allocated. And 
that that's kind of the setup here in, in Seattle, but it's not exclusive to Seattle. There's many areas across the United States and across the globe probably that are experiencing a similar phenomena. But Seattle in particular is experiencing this. It's a, it's a nice problem to have. So just by the numbers, uh, Amazon, um, it's now trading at five times sales and, a, and a, with a PE of 121. Microsoft is trading at 10 times sales with a PE of 35. And, you know, I, I don't know how familiar people are with those numbers, but if you are, you know that those are pretty extreme multiples. If you're not, those are pretty extreme multiples. Actually, I'd like to interrupt here. Just for our listeners, can you explain just briefly what what does price to earnings mean, which is PE, and what does price to sales mean? Yeah, so it's basically... What's normal for evaluation? Something that would be attractive to you as a value investor. Okay, yeah, so... Microsoft is trading at a price to earnings multiple of 35. So that means that investors today are are paying $35 for every dollar of earnings. On average, that number should be closer to 15. I mean, maybe Microsoft's going to be growing a little faster than normal. Maybe it's an exceptional company, all of those things. But it, it's difficult to make the case that a PE multiple of 35 is sustainable. And to give uh, you know our listeners you know some idea of just how crazy these prices are right now, these, these, these stock prices. If you think about all of the productivity that the United States is going to do this year, and you think about all the productivity that's going to come out of Amazon and all the productivity that's going to come out of Microsoft, Microsoft and Amazon are worth 15% of US GDP. Think about that. That seems pretty extreme. I, I think it's hard to say that Amazon and Microsoft are worth 15% of the United States economy their combined market caps. So that's, 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 that's just, that's, I don't know, that's pretty exceptional. And it doesn't take away anything from the businesses being profitable and being great businesses, customer focused. It's just that they somehow got elevated to a point where historically they're very overvalued. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, these are, these are wonderful businesses. You know what I mean? These are great businesses, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, just because their market caps are, so high right now and investors have gotten so enthusiastic. I mean, that doesn't say anything about the underlying business. And so really, you know, this ties into what we're saying. So if you if you are one of the, the folks that were fortunate enough to be, you know, building these businesses over the past 10 years, you've you've been compensated with stock, you've done really well, the business has been booming. It's it might be time to start thinking about getting out of some of those concentrated positions and asking just what else can I do with those funds? How can I how can I take my savings and allocate it in a way that it isn't correlated one to one with my with my income? Great. So I guess the risk is that many Seattle area investors have concentrated investment positions in the same company where their work is kind of what you're saying. In some cases, it sounds like we know folks that have dual income households in the same industry, and they probably have a similar risk profile. But I would like to play devil's advocate on this here. So let's just imagine that it's 10 years ago, it's 2010. And Heidi is a brandly new, freshly minted software engineer, I get my first job at, let's say Amazon, or Microsoft. And um, I'm working there, they give me this package where I get a salary that's great. And part of that salary or tied to the salary is this compensation of stock. And let's say if it was Amazon, 
and it was 10 years ago, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $200 a share. And each year, my compensation is both my salary and more stock. And um, as time goes on now, it's 10 years down the road, and my stock went from $200 a share to $3,200 a share. So I'm sitting very pretty at this point. You know, I maybe I use some of the stock. I'm, I'm fully vested, so I cashed some of it out. I bought a house. Um, things are looking good. So I don't know. Why would I change? I, I think this area has got a lot of people that are wondering that right now. First of all, you know, if that, if that happened to you, I would say congratulations. That's, that's phenomenal. That's the American dream. And uh, you're, you're, you're probably rich. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> but the next question is, uh, how do you stay rich? How do you, how do you keep that money? How do you keep that wealth and, and manage it? You know, maybe selling that position isn't worth it. You know, maybe maybe you understand that the the price is, is high. You know, I mean, Amazon stock was arguably overpriced at with a PE of sixty, and now it's trading at a PE of one thirty. You know, maybe it was overpriced at fifteen hundred dollars. Maybe it was overpriced at two thousand dollars. It was overpriced at twenty five hundred dollars. Who's to say it won't be overpriced at you know five thousand dollars or six thousand dollars? It's 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 entirely possible. The point of this podcast today, it isn't, it isn't to be prescriptive. I mean, we're not telling people to take one course of action or another. But I think what we're really trying to say is, do you understand the risk that you're bearing? Do you, are you comfortable with that risk? Do you, do you want to have your income coming from the same place that all of your financial assets are allocated? And for some people, the answer is, Yeah. It's been working really well. I'm not going to change. I don't want to change. I don't have any better ideas and I don't want to hear any other ideas. And that's fine. But there is a lesson that we have learned from history. And that's that putting all of your eggs in one basket isn't always the best strategy. Sometimes it is, but it's not always the case. And that's that's really kind of the point today. If you have if you've done really well in the stock market and you have a great job and you have you know a net worth of call it five million dollars. That's fantastic. Five million is great. But if you hold on and mean reversion happens where the stock price moves more in line with the, the fundamentals of these wonderful businesses, then it's there's a decent chance that your five million dollar net worth is going to turn into a two million dollar net worth. And, you know, in terms of lifestyle, there's a difference between five million dollar net worth and two million dollar net worth. That's that's kind of the idea today is that if you're comfortable with the risk and you want to keep that, do it. If you aren't comfortable with it and you're looking for other ideas, send us a note, info at redhavenadvisors.com. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, that does remind me of um, the Boeing company. Uh, recently, actually, Boeing stock climbed almost fourfold between 2016 and then March of 2019 when the 737 MAX issues were announced. And so, I mean, it had to have been super distressing for those employees that did have concentrated positions in Boeing stock as they watched their investment portfolio decline and then simultaneously wondering about the security of their jobs. It's been, you know, just a changing industry from that already, plus obviously the COVID um, basically shutting down travel. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, you know, that's exactly the, the right analogy is that, you know, there's a lot of people at Boeing, you know, they were working there for a long time. They, they were buying in at $40 a share, $50 a share, $100 a share, $200 a share, $300 a share, and then it hit 400 And 
all these employees, they were doing the exact same thing the entire time. They're working hard. They're building their company. And out of left field comes a problem that none of them individually wanted. None of them individually asked for. And very few probably even had any idea that was coming. And then just like that, at COVID-19, had problems with the 737 MAX. And in the span of almost no time at all, their job was now uncertain and their investment portfolio had taken a big hit. And remember, before this happened, very few of those people ever thought that was possible. But it, it, it happens. So it's all about risk management. Great. Okay. So now I'm that software engineer and I do understand the risks associated with my household income and my investment portfolio being correlated. But what are some of the forces driving the uncertainty and arguably overvaluation in asset prices these days? We talked about this broadly last week, but what are some of the factors affecting financial assets of Seattle area investors? So I think this is one of the, the more difficult problems for, I think, for folks to understand is that, you know, most people aren't thinking about finance 24-7. There's finance people that are, but for the most part, uh, a lot of the people are, are going to their job, they're building their businesses you know, they're, they're doing, they're doing their software thing or they're doing their, their marketing thing or whatever, whatever function they, they hold within the business. That's what they're doing. You know, under underlying all, all of these, these incredible works that these guys are doing to build these businesses, there's, there's things going on that people don't know about typically that are, that are pushing the prices of the stock through the roof. And unless you're really thinking about this and really analyzing the markets, really analyzing these businesses and really understanding some of the macroeconomics behind what's happening, it's difficult to really know what's happening. I mean, you see the stock price and it just keeps moving higher and higher, but what's really happening underneath the surface, that's where it gets interesting. So some of those things are stock buybacks. We've heard a lot about this in the news. Basically, a stock buyback is when the company that you work for they take some of the funds that they have, some of the profits that they've made, or they, they borrow money. In any event, what they do is they go into the marketplace and then they buy back stock. So that means that there's fewer shares out there in the market. And what this does is it pushes the price higher oftentimes. You know, it's supply and demand. There's a demand for the, you know, shares for these for these companies so that they can fit into an index and all, a whole bunch of other things. And as the, the, the share count moves down, then a lot oftentimes the price moves up and the price moves up because there's fewer shares out there. It also has the effect of boosting the earnings per share. It does a lot to really put upward pressure on the shares. And, you know, for the folks in the audience that like numbers, buybacks, they were running at an annualized rate of about $800 billion a year up through Q1 of this year. So think about up until COVID-19 hit, companies were buying back $800 billion of stock per year. And between Q1 of 2009 and Q1 of 2020, companies bought back a total of $5.6 trillion worth of, worth of stock. And so for people that want to know like, how big of a number is $5.6 trillion actually, if you had $5.6 trillion of cash sitting in your pocket right now, you could buy Amazon three and a half times over. So that's a lot of cash. That's a lot of a lot of buybacks. The other things that are really pushing this market higher and and giving giving folks the illusion of prosperity around a lot of these stocks are things like 
you've probably heard of SoftBank in the news. SoftBank is is it's a, basically it's a Japanese conglomerate. It's a Japanese holding company. It's run by a fellow named Masa San. He's the the founder and CEO, and he earned the distinction of being called the Nasdaq whale. And based, you know, we've we've heard con, we've heard a. Uh, conflicting stories about exactly what SoftBank's strategy has been. But we do know that they run a $100 billion vision fund, which folks may have heard. It's a uh, it's a $100 billion tech tech fund. Basically, it's a venture capital fund worth $100 billion. And some of the things that they've been doing has been investing in tech stocks. One of them, one of, one of those uh, strategies within that portfolio has been buying options. So, some people say that they're the world's biggest Robinhood trader. Other people have argued that SoftBank wasn't really that big of a contributor since they were doing what was called uh, call spreads and um, really basically just re- an equity replacement strategy. So either way, you know, whether or not they had a big impact or not, they had some impact and it was it was positive. And, you know, for people in the Seattle area, the some of the the, the things that SoftBank was was focused on was tech stocks. So naturally, that's the big names like Amazon, Microsoft, they had upward upward pressure on on the uh, the shares in those names, and also you know just another one for scale. These factors have really pushed Apple stock high as well. I mean, it's not just the Northwest companies; Apple is included. In fact, it got so crazy for Apple for a while that Apple crossed the two trillion dollar mark, which means that that one company, Apple, was worth more than the Russell two thousand. Think about that. One company is worth more than the entire Russell 2000. This is truly crazy times. So I think one uh, one thing that's interesting right now, too, is just to uh, think back in history about where we've been and just truly really try and understand how crazy these times are. So if we think back to uh, the late 90s, you know, there was the dot-com bubble in that time period. And it was the same in a lot of ways. It was the same as it is now. It, feel, it felt really euphoric and it felt like things were going to go forever. And there was no reason for caution. There was no reason to exercise any due diligence. All you needed to do is just kind of put your boat in the water and things would be good. So I went back and I found an interview that Bloomberg, Bloomberg had done with a uh, famous tech CEO at the time. And so Bloomberg interviewed this fellow a couple of years after the dot-com bubble burst. His name is Scott McNeely. Some folks in the audience might remember him. But he co-founded Sun Microsystems in 1982. So I'm going to read below just a quick snippet from a 2002 Bloomberg interview. Remember, this was an interview two years after the bursting of the dot-com bubble. And these were some of his thoughts in retrospect. So here we go. Two years ago, we were selling at 10 times revenue when we were trading at $64 per share. At 10 times revenue, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenue for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at 64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? And so then the Bloomberg interviewer asks him, what were you thinking? 
And this was his response. I was thinking, it's $64, what do I do? I'm here to represent the shareholders. Do I stand up and say, sell? I'd get sued if I did that. Do I stand up and say, buy? Then they'd say, I'm Ken Lay. So you just sit there and go, I'm going to be a bum for the next two years. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and I'm not going to try and predict anything. And that's what I did. As mentioned earlier, many wonderful companies in the Seattle area have stock prices trading at valuations that make no sense. I expect we'll see more articles just like this Scott McNeely interview in the not too distant future. And one last thought just to round out the full financial picture. Let's talk about residential real estate because this is this may be part of our listeners' overall financial picture. This also ties back to an observation that you made earlier about real estate. So as we were talking, you know, uh, Seattle is basically a boomtown. It's a modern day gold rush. And so when our listeners think about their, their full financial picture, think about what you got now. You got financial capital, you got human capital, and part of your financial capital, if you think about the whole, the whole portfolio, it, it could be a, a home or a rental property or something else that you own. So now you've got your income, your human capital, and your financial capital all correlated. Okay, so let's think about residential real estate in the Seattle area. In 2007, 2006, somewhere in that time period, real estate in this area peaked. Okay. And I'm looking in front of me, I'm looking at the uh, S&P Case Shiller for the Washington area home price index. We have a chart of this on the on the website. So if any if anybody wants to see this chart or any of the other charts that we've been talking about, check out our, our, our website and come down to uh, podcast episode two and you'll be able to find these charts. So when you look at this, when you look at where the housing bubble was in 2007, 2006, somewhere in that area, you look where that peak was, and then you look at where we're at today. The latest data point that's released is June of 2020. And so between the last peak and today, or the last data point we have, which is June of 2020, it's up 41%. So this is something to consider. And one thing to think about in terms of how this fits into the overall portfolio and to answer your question earlier, Heidi, about what might be driving some of this, we've pulled some stats from the Department of Licensing that basically shows Seattle area migration of licensed drivers into Washington state. And so we have this linked in the show notes and also on on our, our website too, so the folks can come see this for themselves. But basically at the peak a few years ago in 2016, Washington was processing what they call in-migration driver's license requests at a rate of 200,000 people per year. And so when you look at that data, about one-third of those people were moving into the Seattle area. So that's 60,000 people moving into the Seattle area every year. That's 164 people per day moving into Seattle. So again, let's just think about this. We are extremely blessed to have all the prosperity we have in this area. Let's think about what it takes to keep some of that money, assuming that there may be storm clouds on the horizon at some point. Now is the time to be thinking about how that whole portfolio looks and what steps we can take to diversify ourselves to make sure that we are protected in case the prosperity doesn't continue forever. Okay, great. Yeah, this is a good summary of kind of what's going on um, in the Seattle area today. So for listeners that heard our discussion today and are looking for ideas around diversifying their human and financial capital, what can they do? 
I think the best thing to do right now is to understand where we're at in the story before we're really doing anything. Um, as we've said before, this podcast is not prescriptive. I mean, we don't know everything about where people are at, so we certainly can't make a recommendation. But what we can do is give some guidance around what it takes to know what the next step is. And the, the, the thought process for this and basically what I think the next step should be for people is to really sit down with your spouse or, uh, you know, whoever your trusted confidant is, sit down, think about making a one page summary of what, what you've got. So what, where, what is your income? Where is it coming from? What are your assets? What are your liabilities? Really start understanding what that one page summary looks like. And then try and figure out what that means for you. If your income is from a technology source or, you know, a company in the Seattle area, if all of your assets are in a technology company and it's in the Seattle area and you have rental property in the Seattle area, you have a home in the Seattle area, your spouse works in the Seattle area in a similar field and you start seeing that there's just a lot of overlap and then you look at what's in your index funds, your mutual funds, and you see that, you know, you think you own a diversified portfolio, but it turns out when you look at those, those, those holdings in those, those funds that you own a lot of technology companies, a lot of other overpriced assets, you will start to see that maybe there's a lot of correlation. Maybe you own a lot of overpriced assets. And maybe this is uncomfortable. Maybe you don't understand the risk and you're looking for other ideas. So really, the first step is just to build that one-page summary of everything that you have. What, on, 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 what is your life on a page, basically? What is your net worth on a page, your income? And I think that's a good place to start. And one further note on that is that when you get your assets lined out, it's not enough to just say, you know, I own a, you know, an S&P 500 index fund or I own a target date fund or whatever it is. The fund is not an asset. The fund is composed of assets. So understanding what's in those funds is really what matters. You know, as always, the devil is in the details. So really try and understand that. And if you're if you're looking, if you're concerned and you're looking for ideas or help for that, I would strongly recommend you to talk to your financial advisor. And if you don't have a financial advisor, that's why we're here. Send us an email at info at redhavenadvisors.com and we can help you with the one page summary or we can help you get diversified or we can just help discuss your situation and see if there's a, a different path that might have less correlation between where you work and where your, where your financial capital is. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Thank you very much for the fun conversation, and I look forward to the next one in Episode 3.